Each episode of Keys for SLPs has an accompanying audio course on speechtherapypd.com, registered for 0.1 ASHA CEUs. A special coupon code is available for listeners of this podcast. Type the word KEYS for $20 off an audio course subscription. This audio course subscription gives access to all existing and new audio courses from speechtherapypd.com. With more than 200 hours of audio courses on demand and new courses released weekly, it is only $59 per year with the code KEYS. Visit go.speechtherapypd.com slash keys for more information and start earning ASHA CEUs today. Hello, welcome to Keys for SLPs, a weekly audio course and podcast from speechtherapypd.com, exploring keys for speech language pathologists to better serve clients throughout the lifespan. I'm your host, Mary Beth Hines, SLP and certified orofacial myologist experienced in rehab, outpatient, school, and private practice settings. As a curious SLP who embraces lifelong learning, I'm excited to discuss information to help you excel as a professional. Keys for SLPs brings you experts in the field of speech-language pathology, as well as collaborative professionals and caregivers to discuss practical therapy strategies, research, challenges, triumphs, and career opportunities. Engage with a range of practitioners from young innovators to pioneers in the field of speech-language pathology as we discuss a wide variety of topics to help the inspired clinician thrive. Before we get started, here are the financial and non-financial disclosures. Mary Beth Hines is the host of the Keys for SLPs podcast and receives compensation from speechtherapypd.com. She is a member of ASHA Special Interest Groups 2 and 13 and the International Association of Oral Facial Myology. Miriam Campbell receives compensation from speechtherapypd.com for this episode. She is the owner of a private practice and creator of Skills for Connection, a training program. And here's a little bit about our guest today. Miriam Campbell has worked as an SLP in schools, ABA clinics, and in her private practice, The Bubble Space. She specializes in visual, cognitive, and language constructs to aid generalization for communication and conversation skills. Through pursuing a master's in social work, she learned how to support the development of emotional regulation, attachment, and relationships. She then started teaching in the classroom to effectively integrate emotional regulation, communication, problem-solving skills, and social skills into the curriculum. Miriam has created a training program for professionals called Skills for Connection, in which she uses a compilation of the materials she used in lessons and sessions to support social and emotional development. Welcome, Miriam. It is wonderful to have you here today to talk about how SLPs can support social and emotional learning with a team approach. I love that you reached out to me on LinkedIn with an idea for a podcast. We are always looking for ideas for episodes. Thanks, Mary Beth. It's so lovely to be here. It's so special to be able to talk to fellow therapists who are listening to this because they care about helping support social-emotional development. It's wonderful. (laughs) Really beautiful. Your decision to pursue a master's in social work after working as an SLP, as well as working as a classroom teacher, gives you a unique perspective and breadth of experience. Can you tell us about your journey as an SLP to MSW to classroom teacher to social and emotional strategies trainer? Sure. I always cared about communication and connection. That connection is 
what I'm passionate about. And I feel that speech therapists are in a unique position to help clients be able to connect inwardly, understand what it is that's going on in their own mind and their own heart, and communicate that with another person to be able to connect with the other. And so I was passionate about pursuing speech therapy for that reason. And I was working in the schools. I was doing my mandates, my 30-minute mandates twice a week. And I was working in an ABA clinic, you know, did part-time for each and then for many years. And (laughs) I felt like I really wanted to be able to support more of the person because I was trained and I underwent more training after I finished my master's. You know, I went to different social skills trainings and things Mm -hmm. like that. And I felt like I really wanted to make sure that I was addressing like the emotional regulation piece and all these pieces because I'll try and talk to my clients and couldn't even get their attention because they were so dysregulated or so emotional that everything was going on in their world. And so I went back to school for social work and I, you know, learned about emotional regulation and connection and all these different really important core things and sort of connected the two. So I had like the logic language components and then combined it with the emotional aspects And then from there, I was loving working with my students and my clients, but I really saw the need for generalization. And I would sometimes go with my advanced social skills notice that when I went to the classroom to tell the teacher what I was working on with the student, you know, the teacher would very clearly not have any bandwidth for me to be able to tell them any goals to generalize. And the parents were often not available, especially during the hours that I was working. And they were, you know, it just, it wasn't, there wasn't a collaborative approach. And I switched settings and I worked in a different location and I saw that collaboration is possible and it is incredible what tools you can accomplish and how much support students can get and progress they can make within that model. I saw that in the Aldenu school that I worked at. That was sort of like lit a fire in me and I was like, okay, this can happen. We can really give children the support they need and provide adults the when we have a collaborative team approach. And that spurred me <laughs> to start teaching because if we could do it in the classrooms or we could do it throughout the day and we could figure out how to put it throughout the day, then the skills that we're working with one-on-one therapy, we can, in RTI type of model, be integrating into the classrooms or into our social settings when the other people in the environment are set up. So that was how I developed skills for connection. And now I'm doing these trainings for teachers and therapists to be able to do this in their one-to-one sessions and then become the advocates in their location, in their schools, in their programs to teach the other professionals, the other educators, how to support our students with connection because that's what we're all here for, connection. Well, thank you for sharing that. And that journey really gives you such rich experience. And from going back to school to getting your master's in social work after you already had your master's and your C's in speech language pathology, to actually going into the classroom and being a classroom teacher, that gives you such a great perspective because we've all been in a situation with wonderful teachers, but they have 30 kids or more sometimes to work with. And we're saying, oh, let's use these strategies for this one child. And they're like, okay, thanks. I will. I'll try as, you know, (laughs) while we're talking, the classroom is disrupting in chaos because we've already taken the teacher from the classroom. So by you putting yourself in that role as classroom teacher, you've really gained insight into this team approach. 
Yeah, a hundred percent. That that was something, you know, when I walked into the classroom and I was a trained professional, I was, I was coming to support kids with emotional connection. Like that was what I was, I was going to come and teach. And I found that it is impossible to do that without support. Like I was trained and I'm trying to like, okay, now I have to get my photocopies in on time and I have to take attendance and I have to finish all this curriculum. There wasn't any really extra bandwidth. So figuring out a way that teachers won't have to do extra in order to be able to support our students is key. That was what I did. I went to my therapy sessions and I called out what are the constructs? What are the frameworks, the containers of the concepts I'm teaching? Simplify them to the point that any teacher could put them into any session without adding to their day. They don't have to put additional time into their day. They have the constructs. They apply them within their regular math session. Yes, math and anything and how to emotionally regulate for themselves. So when the classroom is you know, erupting in chaos, they can use the skills themselves and then coach the children when they're struggling and having a meltdown because they can't figure out how to read this paragraph or they're so frustrated because of a engagement or interaction with a peer, they have the tools because they know the constructs themselves. They can adapt them and generalize them in, throughout the day. That's that's really what my goal was. And that, that was what Skills for Connection does. That's why I'm so excited about it. <laughs> True integration. And you certainly have the experience to show it has worked and will continue to. Okay. So before we dive in, will you define for us, we've all worked with social skills, but can you define what you mean by social and emotional learning? Yes. So I'm going to like put it like this, like we've all been in relationships. I assume if you're listening to this podcast, and (laughs) I think that everyone would agree that relationships require work. There isn't a relationship that is just, oh yeah, I know it right away. Even if you have the most savvy social skills, you still have to learn, okay, what is this person's specific interests or dislikes? Or, oh, when I say it like this, it reminds them of their ex and that's how she said it. And so like, like there's always work in a relationship for everybody. Not, there isn't, there's no exceptions to that. And if you are in that exception, then either you should be writing a book or I don't believe you know the person well enough. <laughs> but that's really the premise where I believe that relationships require work. So some people have to work more for those skills of connection. And social emotional is taking the piece where it's, you know, the language cognitive aspects and the emotional, like the whole person, looking at the whole person with their strengths, with their weaknesses, knowing who they are. And then, like I said, like to know what, who they are that they want to then communicate to the other person and to hear who is the other person so I can understand them better. And then that communication can happen in a more fluid way where two people are getting closer and connecting more. That's how I would define it. It's the skills that we develop for connection. Okay. Okay. So skills that we develop for connection and really looking at the whole person and the environments, plural, school, as well as home. All right. Will you explain how social emotional skills can be integrated into the client's life using that team approach? Yes. So when we have these constructs and we teach these constructs, and I'm going to go into that a little bit later about what a construct is. I mentioned it briefly. And you have everybody, the therapist, the teacher, a parent using these phrases. What you've done is you've sort of taught a skill and printed a skill and then allowed it to carry over because then anytime someone uses that that catchphrase perspective taking or well what are you going to brainstorm or what any of the other constructs what's the topic or you know I, I didn't create connection so the skills that we have for connection the rules that we have for connection you know, they're not 
earth shatteringly new skills. Like if you think about it, you'll be like, yeah, duh, that makes sense. But what you'll find is that by using these consistent constructs and their visual of how you're going to be able to create a pattern. So this way the student can, when the parent uses that phrase, tap into, oh, right, that was the same thing that my therapist used in my one-to-one session. Or, you know, in their group session, they could be like, hey, that wasn't what I was talking about. They're like, okay, topic maintenance, that phrase, topic maintenance, will bring back all those sessions that you did one-on-one. And they'll be able to apply it. Like my goal for my students is that they stop working with me. So what I want them to do is walk away as their own skills for connection coach, their own internal coach, where they have the skills internally and they have those phrases like, okay, this, and they've done it enough times with, you know, repetition and opportunities again and again and again in different situations that they have those skills themselves. When someone else uses that phrase as a cue, it brings back that whole lesson. And then now they can be like, oh, this is the situation that she was referring to, especially for our kids on the spectrum who inferencing is a challenge for that that cognitive skill of inferencing the more that we give it to them throughout the day that is so integral because they're not necessarily understanding the connection like you might say okay you squeeze an apple it makes apple juice you squeeze an orange it makes orange juice what happens when you squeeze a grape they may or may not make that connection grape juice our goal is to give them enough examples that they can eventually get to that point and they might need that coaching from the people in their environment of oh let's connect those dots okay great now and our our goal would be that they would do it themselves excellent excellent so repeated exposures and using the same linguistic and visual constructs exactly so like for example you referred to topic maintenance so you're going to communicate this to the classroom teacher the parent and anyone else working with the child. And how do you usually do that through like an email or do you have like a form or what is the normal team approach? We've done it all. Every school is a little different. What I find is the most effective is to have a teacher training day and not to do it all at once, but you do, okay, this month we're working on, let's say, topic maintenance. And when we say topic maintenance, I'm not going to just throw like, okay, make sure to have topic maintenance. I give them a specific worksheet, a specific format a visualized format and anything they're doing anyways. Again, like there's no, the teachers don't have any extra time. Like I thought I was busy as a therapist. I went to the classroom. I was like, oh, I didn't know what the word busy meant. And I was very, I'm doing all the IEPs and the paperwork. And, you know, we all know what that's like, but in the classroom, it's like that plus, plus, plus. So they didn't have any extra time. So here I am giving them another burden. Instead of giving them a burden, I was now giving them a tool. Like, okay, your student keeps on calling out and talking about their pizza break during your math lesson, teach your math lesson using this worksheet. And then if the student goes off on time, instead of it being a like a punitive type of reaction of like, how could it be off topic? You sort of just point to be like, oh, is that connected? And using the visualization, they'll see themselves. You could you don't even have to say something, you could just point. And it doesn't have to interrupt the classroom. Instead of it being another burden that the teacher has to deal with, it becomes a tool to support them. So this is how like, you know, I know I've walked into classrooms and then like, okay, can I please take the student out? And then the teacher will like, look at me like, how could you? And now that I've taught, I'm like, yeah, that is obnoxious. How could I? You know, like, right. <laughs> but at the time it was like, I was like a burden to them. And when you change it and you do these trainings, so you asked me, how do you get it to the teachers? So every school has their own culture. So like some schools, the therapist on staff, the speech therapist can do an RTI lesson, you know, as part of the staff training, the principal would have to be on board to get, explain to them what's, what you're doing. And then from there, you can then say, okay, so these five students are doing it. It's RTI that students who don't even necessarily need so much support, but need a little bit of support are going to be getting the same worksheet. Or you could be doing it individualized within the classroom, like a push-in type of model where you're giving them the worksheet. They're doing it one-to-one 
in their math session using this construct. And then again, as many opportunities as possible. Will you just define what you mean by RTI? Because we have a lot of different listeners. Yes, yes, yes. RTI is response to intervention. And I remember when I was in school, I heard it and I was like, oh, that would be a nice thing. And I was like, that's a dream. That would never happen. (laughs) It's impossible. How could it happen? But that was sort of what I saw was the path forward. It's the path to supporting our teachers. It's the path to supporting ourselves as therapists that we don't get burnt out. It's like very frustrating, I found, in my half-hour mandate that I would have and to feel like, hey, there's no generalizing happening. I'm pouring my guts into supporting this student and there's no, it's not, it's not going anywhere. It was so, the burnout rate was insane and the frustration. And sometimes like, it's hard to know, okay, so what should I be doing that's most meaningful? Having these constructs that you can follow. So the RTI method is basically that you have three tiers the first tier is regular classroom that has like a little bit of support. So students that like could use, use a little bit of support. So let's say using this terminology and the worksheets throughout the classroom day, that would be like tier one. Tier two is let's say sessions, uh, group lessons. So like let's say you have SEL time for your class or let's say you have a, a class fight that you have to work through as a teacher or as a therapist, if you're doing push-in and you're doing that push-in lesson, you use this model. And then if you're doing the, for tier three is the most intense intervention. That's one-to-one. So some of you, if you're having broader schools, like with a larger group, you can still use these constructs and then just apply each student's needs. So you have one student that's struggling with paragraph writing. You can use the same topic maintenance construct with paragraph writing as you can use with conversation skills. So you have students with different goals, different targets, using the same worksheet the same construct, the same framework, yet they have their different goals that you're accomplishing. With the first level, you're teaching the students in the class that don't need group sessions and don't need one-on-one, but they still could use a little help, or are you teaching the whole class? Very good question. The RTI model says that you're supporting the group, like let's say students who don't have an IEP, who could use that support. Now, what will happen is if you're supporting those students who like that way they don't fall down all the way to tier three, If you're supporting those students, the students who are tier three are going to be getting generalization because they're getting the review. So it's win, 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 win. I think you could even, if you, it depends what your student's mandate is, but if let's say the student doesn't have a specifically one-to-one, you perhaps can use, you'd have to check with your ASHA ethical person, you know, to figure out what the law would be, but you could find out if during that child's push in session, you can do a class lesson using this and training the teacher how to do it while you're doing this. So they could see what that looks like. So that, you know, therapists are always asking, like, how do I do push in? How do I do, especially with with the older grades? That could be a way, you know, communicating. And I would say that developing a relationship with your teachers is key. Speaking of the keys, that is the key. (laughs) The key is having a good relationship with them. And that can be anything from checking in with them, like, how you doing? How you doing? And a little bit can go so far to getting your students to support and getting yourself a support and then showing them that you as the professional can be their support. You know, we're all in this together. We're all on the same team and we're all just trying to help our students and help develop relationships and connection and everyone needs support, including us. Well, and I love what you said about giving the teachers a tool versus a burden. So you're showing that you are really a team player and recognizing that you don't want to give them another burden. You want to give them a tool. And as far as what you said about, you know, the push-in model and teaching to a whole class or a big group, I do think you might get even more buy-in from the actual student who's at tier three because they see, oh, everybody uses this. Mm-hmm. 
That's very true. That's very true. And, and sometimes like when I was doing the bubble space type of work, which the concept is, is like when you're together with another person, you share this sacred space of this bubble and there's rules within this bubble. So let's say a tier three student might be getting more the bubble state space type of support, which is like the bubble double thing last time. So that type of support might sound a little strange, but if everyone is aware of it, then that becomes something that's, oh, that's an okay language and cue to use within a public forum. So like I've gone into classrooms and done like matching exercises or things like that. It's a different concept. Sorry, not one that I mentioned. I'm aware that you don't that's know what okay. I'm That's okay. <laughs> but you know, other constructs, you know, there's I think we're up to like 13 now that we can use it in the classroom. And so, you know, I've done a class le- classroom lesson. And then when I go back into with my one-to-one with the student, she's like, oh yeah, just like you said in the class. I'm like, great. We just got pre-teaching, review, generalization, all, check, check, check. It's like, awesome. <laughs> Excellent. Yes. Covering all the, all the bases, right? So let's kind of dig into visualization support skill development and retainment. So kind of what you said, using the visualizations and using the repeated lessons helps with generalization. But let's focus on the visualizations right now. So what I find is, first of all, we only can give what we know. So I naturally am somebody who thinks through images. And I know that Linda Mood-Bell has done all her work with visualizing, verbalizing, and she talks a lot about how when we communicate and people create pictures in their mind and that we could teach through those visualizations, through teaching those concepts. It's a beautiful program. If you haven't checked it out, I recommend it. And I'm not getting paid to say that. Okay. <laughs> I'm just saying, I'm just saying you know, I love that's, the, that's one of the many things I love about doing a podcast. It's great to be able to give each other a little shout outs and add to their credibility and support each other. So yes. that's wonderful. We welcome that support. So feel free. <laughs> okay, good. Fine. So then I will not hold back then. No, don't hold so, she, so her whole program is like you teach people how to think through words and then they can communicate those images and the people can understand. So it helps a lot, a lot with comprehension. So if let's say you sort of translate a situation and you create it into more concrete, like a graphic organizer in their mind that they could have an organizer, this information can be organized instead of it being like, oh my gosh, I don't understand how do I communicate with this person. I don't know how to start the conversation. I don't understand why my mom is mad at me, why my girlfriend said that I'm being insensitive and thoughtless. I don't understand it. They have these graphic organizers that they can start organizing their information. Now, the only way they do that is when we teach them how to do it. The reason why I love it is that I don't think I've had a session through all the years, 11 plus years I've been doing this, that I have not been able to use these constructs with any of my sessions. I'm talking about social skills or social work or language therapy or anything because they're so versatile. Any conversation can fit into this organization and it creates a structure and a sort of safety that now they have this concept. It's not just like, okay, let me teach you how to read this exact paragraph. It's let me teach you how to read paragraphs. Not That's not how to do this conversation. It's how we do lots of conversations. So there's a meta aspect to it, which is perfect for our young adults and our teens because they're starting to develop frontal lobe process. So they're able to start thinking a little more meta about these concepts. Having that visualization is sort of like their safety net, that that filter, that information can go through and now they could start piecing it together. And we have to do it through repetition. Like 
we can't just give them this structure and be like, okay, now use it all the time. We teach them how to use it. We teach them how to do it when they're reading a paragraph. We teach them how to do it with the conversation. We teach them how to do it when they're hearing a podcast. We're teaching them, okay, what is the main idea? What are the supporting concepts and things like that? That those visualizations are our way of saying, here, take this and run. You know, this is yours. You can have this, you know, you have this thing to hold that you can take with you and use it whenever you need it in whatever situation. Okay. Well, thank you. Okay. So let's talk about the visualization for your lesson in getting to know you. Okay. So getting to know you is, it's fun. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, that's so key that you say that because when the therapist is having fun, the students or the clients are having fun and they're going to learn more when they're having fun. So love that you start off with that. It's fun. I do find it fun because there are a lot of fabulous, fabulous social skills programs out there. One of the things that I wanted to do, why I decided to do my own, I, I really love a lot of them. You know, there's wonderful, wonderful programs out there. One of the things I wanted was I really wanted it to be a strengths-based program where instead of like, don't do this or they're going to hate you, it's we want connection. How can we get connection? We want to be able to help that person. Let's do it from a place of kindness and empathy. So it's like less practical and, and less pragmatic of let me, how can I get what I need? And a focus there, of course, that piece is part of it. Cause that's part of being human is that piece of who am I, who are you? How do we engage with that? You know, that difference, but I really wanted it to be a strengths-based approach. I want to be like, okay, how do we connect with the other person? So when a getting to know you is a, I try and follow a model, which I have in my bubble double book, which is a social skills kids book that's coming out that has the bubble concept that I was saying about with the two people engaging and they share this space. The rules are in this space, all the rules that they have within that. But I try and always follow this check match stick model, which was in that book in bubble double. And just to clarify, is that a book for students to use themselves or is that for professionals to use with students? It's officially looks like a children's book. It looks like you know, the pictures are probably for like four-year-old through eight-year-olds. But my goal was, how could a therapist who doesn't have time to read a whole chapter book understand how to do social skills therapy and understand how to explain it to students and understand understand it? So like I've used it for myself, you know, obviously I, when I made it, I, I use it with my students and they can understand visually what the rules are. So they can, th- like a child can pick it up and read it. But you can use it as a base, as the springboard of all your social skills lessons. It serves as a curriculum guide. So it goes through like from, you know, all these different skills and how to do that. It's a social skills book, which is very, very basic. It's a lot of things that people will naturally know. Kids on the spectrum may not, kids who have ADHD who are missing cues because they cannot focus long enough to notice them. Those students really benefit from it. These social skills contract that I'm referring to as far as the getting to know you, topic maintenance, cause and effect, you know, perspective taking, those type of things. Those ones are a little more meta and I usually use for a little bit older, but the two do work hand in hand. The reason why I was mentioning is having that structure, the check, match, and stick is on my worksheets, I try and have it consistent. So that way that picture, that visualization is very strong. So getting to know you will look like there'll be an image of a person and a speech bubble and a thought bubble and a feeling and, and their body. Because again, I didn't mention social skills. I just organizing it. You know, that was, I just wanted to organize how people think about it. So they'll have like, okay, well, what does the person look like? The person you're talking to. And I'll always start with my therapy sessions. I'll do it with myself. Like, okay, what do you see about me? 
okay, you see me, I'm wearing this hat and I'm wearing long sleeves and I'm wearing a long skirt. Okay, now what do you think? Okay, what do you hear me saying? Oh, you hear me saying about social skills and you hear me talking about school. What do you think I'm thinking about? You know, and then going from there, like following through the whole structure. And then at the end would be like, hey, what do you choose? What are you going to choose to talk to me about? That's like a precursor to conversation skills. Or how do you get to know the kid in your classroom? Or and let me do it for you. What do I see for you? And then you provide a mirror for them. I see that your, that your shirt has applesauce on it. I think he wants to finish eating his applesauce quickly. Is that what you were thinking? Is that not what you were thinking? You know, just teaching them how to do that process in a very structured way. What do I see? What do I think? What do I feel? What do I choose? That whole component. There's a little more to that worksheet, but that is the base of it. That's the concept. And is that the same worksheet that you would use for elementary as well as teenage and young adult? Yeah, the imagery of it, like sometimes you have to like get rid of, change the font a little bit. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> it looks more mature, but it's the same concept because it's the same concept I'm using as an adult. When I meet somebody, you know, and that's outside and I'm in the, in the parking lot and I'm seeing that person, I'm like, okay, that person is walking unsteadily. They're shouting out, what do I see them doing? Um, what am I going to choose? I'm going to choose to go the other way around or ask the security guy to walk me to my street, I don't, to my car. I don't feel safe. That same construct is the same thing I'm doing as an adult. It's the same thing that they're doing as in kindergarten. It's the same thing they're doing in middle school. It's the same thing they're doing as a young adult. It's throughout the spectrum because these are core skills. What becomes more advanced is our ability to like shortcut, like, okay, so how quickly we're able to figure out what probably is happening. Right, right. That's through experience. But the process is consistent, which is why it works through all ages. All right. And how about for topic maintenance? What does the visualization look like for that? Topic maintenance would be, let's say that it's a web, like you have the center web and then you have all the connecting components. So what I'll do is I'll say, okay, so what is it that we're talking about? You know, your teacher just got back from maternity leave in during recess. You want to have a conversation with her. Okay, so what is the topic you're going to ask her about? What's going on in her world? And we'll have done that from a getting to know you. You know, what are all the things you know about this person? Now, you know all those things about them. You know what they're thinking about. You know what they care about. Now, what's the main topic? Okay, you want to talk to her about her baby. Okay, so all the things you're going to say to her are going to be about the baby or about her taking care of the baby. Now, when I'm practicing it with them, practicing that conversation before we practice it in person and then before he actually goes out and has that conversation with his teacher, Anytime he has a concept, he has to connect it to that center idea. Because sometimes they'll be like, yeah, it is connected. It's because she said she doesn't have sleep. And so then I was saying that I also have a hard time sleeping. Okay, so that is technically connected, but that might be too far for the person you're talking to to feel like you're talking about that topic. Using that visualization supports them in doing that. So I have a student who teachers complain, the details have been changed. So if you hear me and you think I'm talking about you, I'm not. <laughs> your <laughs> Thank students, you for I'm clarifying. Not. We are very HIPAA compliant here at Keys for SLPs. Yes. I'm not talking about anyone that you know, <laughs> but I'm sure because all of us are in this process of developing our skills, you might recognize parts in yourself or in other people or in your students or in your clients. And that's all part of, a, of growing. So the student would be in the classroom the teacher would often complain that he was going off topic. And so I had the luxury, I'm doing a one-to-one session. I had the luxury to like actually talk it out with him. And I, of course, had my worksheet in front of me. As I said, I use them in all my all my sessions. I, I have not found one that I didn't use it or use it. So I'm, I'm writing out what he's saying. So this way also 
serves for him to see like, okay, I already said that. I can't say that. I didn't say that. And he says something and I'm like, where does that go? And he's like, oh, it's because it's connected to this. And he could clearly show me how it's connected. But that gave me an opportunity instead of being like, hey, too far-fetched. I could just be like, okay, it's connected to that circle, but that's not the main circle. So we can't say that now unless the conversation then moves to this circle and then everything is going to be around that circle. And that's normal in conversation. And, and I'll, at a later level, I'll teach them the, you know, train a thought type of conversation, but they can't do it unless they can, they really master this skill. They're going to be like, you know, the association skill, they're going to have a hard time with paragraph writing and how, identifying what is it that the person's saying? Are they talking about the color, you know, yeah. One of my students, you show them a. I showed them a, a Curious George book. Love Curious George. <laughs> <laughs> no matter what age you are, good for cause and effect. Yes, <laughs> it's good for cause and effect. It's not good for learning about responsibility no, or no, problem no. solving or any of that. Good for humor too. <laughs> right. I would tell my students, I'm like. George is an animal. That's why he can't make this type of, that's why he's not going to make good decisions like you would. <laughs> like, yes, yes. Don't identify with George here. <laughs> not the point. But uh, so I'll show them this image and I'll be like, George at the zoo. What's this a picture of a red balloon? You know, and that's a matter of like schema and understanding what's the main idea. How do I understand small topics connecting them to the main idea, which is a big challenge for a lot of our, our students and clients on the spectrum being able to teach them this skill, like, okay, so what do we see in this picture? Okay, I see a lion and I see a zebra and I see, oh, I do see a boy in a balloon, but what is the main thing? Okay, what is the most of the things you see? And then teaching them how to identify what's important by, is it number? Is it the number of things that you see? Is it the most emotional thing that you see? Which often is. I think that's often usually that's how we identify what's most important is who's screaming the loudest. Just that skill of learning about everything they engage with, whether it's a book, whether it's a conversation, using these constructs, these visualizations to be able to call out what they should then do going forward. Okay. Okay. Now you said topic maintenance first, and then a train of thought lesson would come after. Do you have a specific order for your whole training program? So that's such a good question. So let's say I'm, I'm starting this new cohort and I did have to, because I had to like tell people what it was that we were working on, create some type of order. But because especially kids on the spectrum, are their skills are so splintered, you might have a student who has no problem with topic maintenance and has a really hard time with association train of thought type of construct. So I'm teaching this order, but it's not hard and fast. Like you might find a student that really excels in one area and not another area, especially with kids on the spectrum. Like that, it could be with cognitively, there is a normal development. I learned from Shoshana Bass. She taught me this amazing construct. She said that first it's um, vocabulary, then it's association, then sequencing, and then cause and effect, then um, problem solving, and then inferencing. Okay. Or something like that. I could be, I'm switching two of them. But like understanding these things, and you should totally check her out. She's amazing. Tell me her name again. Shoshana Bass, B-A-S-S. So she's also like, she's fabulous. But that type of infrastructure where you are seeing, okay, well, what's developmentally appropriate for this student? Or am I, if I'm teaching them problem solving and they don't even have cause and effect, that would be very inappropriate. If they don't have sequencing and they can't retell, they don't understand, okay, he, he hit me. Now, how did we get to him hitting you? Let's retell that story. That's a different construct, the sequencing construct. And how do we get there is very important to understand. Okay, so what do I do next? So you have a general order, but the sequence is determined by their skill set. Obviously, you don't need to teach a skill set if they already have it. 
Yeah. And I also don't necessarily, like, even when, like, when I'm teaching therapists, like I might teach it out of order because it'll be easier for the therapist to understand it. Like I'd probably teach a cause and effect next to problem solving, even though brainstorming might go in between that as a technical skill or maybe not. I guess I would say I don't have a specific order, even though okay. I sort of do. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, How's that? <laughs> that's okay. And just one other point of clarification, you said when I'm teaching a cohort, and are you referring to when you're teaching for Skills for Connection? What is a cohort within Skills for Connection? So I am doing, because I really want to spread this, I've been doing one-to-one sessions. And then I would teach the other therapists that were working with the student and the other teachers that were working with the student. But what I found is that I only can work with a limited amount of students that way. Now, when I teach therapists how to do this and I train therapists how to do it, now each of them can work with all their clients and do it with so many more kids. So I'm doing a training cohort. It's six weeks, might be a little bit longer, might be a little shorter, depending on what the group needs. They're starting soon. Okay. <laughs> I don't know when you're going to be listening to this podcast, but I, they come around in cycles. So it, another one will be starting soon. Okay. And that where I teach the skill in a live training, and then we have a Q&A. So let's say you have a specific student. How do I apply this to the specific student later on to be able to see, okay, so what does this look like practically? How do I actually put this in to my day? Because there's so many of the skills, and this is really, I guess, really the premise before any of all this, which is if we're using the skills ourselves, we can teach them to our clients. Like I was saying, like taking that deep breath as a teacher, you know, then I can give it over to my students how to do that deep breath or how to do the problem. If I'm doing the problem solving myself, I can model it for my students, but also use it for myself when I'm trying to, okay, so I had the whole session planned and now the student is crying the whole time. So what do I do there? How do I address this? And learning about ourselves and how we're ticking and how we're processing, we then will be able to teach our students better how to do it. Okay. So that is skills for connection. And you have a cohort of like five or 10 people that you teach at a time. It fluctuates. It, like, it really depends. Like if like I have a bunch of teachers that are in that cohort, it might be able to go a little bit slower depending on the group's awareness. My goal is to have it in six weeks, like Sunday morning for an hour, because none of us have any extra time. And right. <laughs> just to like, you know, learn the skill, you have a general baseline of familiarity with the concepts. Now, this is the construct. This is how you would teach it. This is how you would do it in your classroom. This is how you would type of things. So when I have a therapist group, usually we can move a little bit faster. It, it's group dependent. And the number is also group dependent. Okay. So you teach it Sunday morning, and then you have a Q&A time later at a different time. Yeah. Like as in, Right now it's Wednesdays, but yeah. Okay. Okay. And it's like, it's like an hour of time. So like, let's say no one has questions that week, then I don't need to waste anyone's time. And if people have a lot of questions, then I'll go that hour. And if people have carryover questions, they can bring them the next week, you know, type of thing. Okay, great. Very helpful to know. So how does using a skill construct support generalization and adaptability specifically with young adults? We've kind of sprinkled young adults in here a little bit, but specifically, how would you use these with young adults? Okay, so young adults, like anyone who is entering adulthood, is having a very, very broad experience. Like their cultural implications of that and individual life experiences and family situations and their own process of their own self-discovery and things like that. So the constructs, because they are so 
baseline like uh, structure framework type of things, you can apply that student situation into it. So there's a student that's struggling with their relationship with their mother. And you talk about perspective taking with that specific students. Now that skill has immediately been generalized in a way that the student feels like, oh, this is important to me. I actually care about this. Their girlfriends keep bringing up with them. And I'm saying girlfriends because I think it's four to one ratio males to females. That's what that was at least last time I checked. It could be a change. The proportion of how many males were diagnosed with ASD and need skills because they want to be in relationships and don't understand why are my relationships failing? Why isn't this working? So being able to teach them a perspective taking thing within that. Okay. So like, what is it that she, you know, even could do getting to know you? What do you know about her? What does she like? What does she not like? What does she care about? What does she not care about? And I've done this with, um, I had, a married woman that I was working with and who struggled with social skills. And I remember doing it with her her, about her husband. Don't worry, details have been changed. And, you know, just even like seeing that process of her like, oh, right. What is it that they, what is it that he likes? Oh, like, and then I can talk to them about that. Like what's going on in their world, who the other is, is the skills that we all, you know, as I said, like we all can work on our relationships, this perspective taking things. Okay. How do I do it with my boss? Okay. My, my principal is saying that I need to be more understanding about the teachers. Okay. So what's going on in my, in my principal's world. Okay. So they're dealing with all their teachers who are stressed and going on virtual learning or whatever. And, and now their teachers are coming and saying, like, my therapists are making my life harder. Right. <laughs> you know, and like, that's from their perspective. Okay, so now what do I need to do if I want to do my job? What can I do? Okay, so I'm going to try and figuring out what your choices are from that place. Or like, like, I'll have therapists say to me, like, you know, understandably, the other staff don't understand what I do. They say they don't, none of their students need speech therapy because none of them have stutterings. So that's why they, none of their kids need speech therapy. That, that's their perspective. So now if I'm using that same skill, the perspective taking skill, now I can take a time and be like, okay, what is going on in her world? Her world is just like, let this lady stop bothering me. <laughs> Get her off my back. There's no one who has a stutter. I don't even have a head to think about. Perhaps there might be more to the picture. Okay, so what choices do I have from that place? Okay, what do I know about her? Okay, I know that she really likes coffee. And if I take care of her coffee, you know, and not to become their slave or what a great shape, but just that's part of skills, learning to connect with other people, figure out what do they need? How can I support them? Who do I want to be in this? Okay, I want to show up and she might be being obnoxious, but I want to show up and I want to do the best that I can and, you know, nurture in whatever ways I can be nurturing. And what do I need from it? You know, all, all those different components are all social skills, concepts, social emotional constructs that we use for ourselves. So when we think about like, how can this be generalized and adapted? It's so broad, but it's so like it, it has concrete containers, which very often is helpful for us when we start our session. We're like, okay, I don't, I just started working. I don't even know what to do with this client. Or like, I just find myself, I'm just reading books and just trying to do narrative. I hope it's being helpful, like throwing, you know, well, let's try this type of thing. You know, here you have a very specific construct you follow. It gives you that security. I know what I'm doing is helpful. I know that I'm giving real skills. This is a skill that can be generalized. This is a skill that the student or the young adult can walk away with and have in their relationships and have better connection and better communication and be better known and better seen and better be able to see other people and be a better problem solver. All these constructs are all helping provide those supports. And because they're so core skill constructs, they can be adapted in so many ways. It's so versatile. 
So you talk when you're working with elementary kids, the parents are part of this team approach. You're sending the worksheets home, communicating, emailing, calling. First of all, I don't send the worksheets home. I send the worksheets, the filled in worksheets for the parents, but I don't give the parents any extra work. Okay. Okay. <laughs> they do not need any extra work. <laughs> the, the worksheet that you worked on in your session goes home. And those parents know that you're working on visualization and these social constructs. So this way, when the child is at home and the child is having a tiff, let's call, with their sibling, and the parent says, like, from your perspective, and then very clearly communicates what that child's perspective is. Now that child is no longer tantruming on the floor because that child feels like, oh, mom sees me. Mom's not my enemy. She's my teammate. She's my partner. She gets that I really, really don't want anyone to use my bag. She sees that I'm so frustrated because she's telling me. I see it from your perspective. You're so frustrated. You so you love that bag. You just got that from grandma from your for a present. Okay. Now that now what do you think's happening in your sister's perspective? Now mom doesn't have to use a worksheet because you in your session and in your classroom have been using these structures throughout the day in their social studies lessons and in their math lessons and in your one-to-one with them that this child now and the mom can have the support without having to sit down with a pen and paper because who has time for that? Right, right. When you're not, you know, <laughs> mom's not getting paid to do a session with their kid. <laughs> no, 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 no. But they've seen, they've seen the sheet so they know about the construct that you're working exactly. on in that in that time. Exactly. And we do parent trainings. Therapists can do parent trainings after school. You know, the sky's the limit. I, we sometimes think of ourselves, okay, I had this mandate. If When we have a team approach and there's so much you can do, it's amazing. And so would you use that same team approach with, let's say a 16 year old? Well, it depends a 16 year old as far as how, how aware they are of their environment. A 16 year old sometimes has the emotional development of a five year old and you would use the exact same constructs. Obviously, the situations will be different. You know, like I, I do not want to find your iPad on the kitchen table when there's three bowls of cereal here and they're going to spill. You know, that, that type of situation might change where a five year old may or may not have an, although nowadays, but the structure could change. So like, let's say in a, in a group, let's say you have like a group setting or a respite setting or a rehab setting. The team members can also be a part of that. I would be hesitant to ask a peer to tell them, well, what's my perspective? What's your perspective? Unless it's a situation where the, the two already are not peers, meaning like anyone who the person has a real potential for a real connection, I would not introduce them to this unless they're doing couples therapy and they both are signing up for this because it's sort of a betrayal to their partner or to their trust. But if let's say you're they're in a situation where it's a, it's a group session or a couple comes, a young adult couple, that, you know, and she says, I love him dearly. He doesn't listen to me ever. And now he needs to learn these skills. And you could say, like, okay, like, well, Jack, do you want to learn these skills? Would it be helpful if, if Melissa gives you these cues? Would that be supportive to you? And him agreeing, because as we get older, he has more autonomy and it would be disrespectful, you know, just from a baseline human perspective, I would not ever go in and, you know, <laughs> you know, talk about another person, you know, that that's gossip. You know, that's not, that's not appropriate. It would diminish their connection. And that would be the opposite of what my goal would be. So if there was a mutual agreed consent and he said, please talk to her. Yeah, I actually just had this with a random person. <laughs> they asked me, they said, I'm, I'm in, a, in a situation with this other person and the other person keeps complaining about how I'm acting. Would you mind talking to them and explaining to them about my Asperger's? And then afterwards, they texted me and said something like, 
did you talk to them? What did they say? And I said, hey, you asked me to talk to them. I, I can't, it's not, we can't do this. Either, either you want me to talk to them or not. So like having that like open, especially for HIPAA, but she asked me, can you speak to them? Then I was able to speak to them with her request. Do you know what I'm saying? It's you have to be you have to be smart, <laughs> which I'm sure if you're if you if you got this far in the podcast, you get it enough that you can I'm sure use your sensitivity and judgment to be able to do it appropriately. It's it's tricky when it's a student; you'd have to get consent. So it's it's just an individual by individual basis. You may be working with the parents, you may be working with a different communication partner if that has been requested. It just depends. Or if it's like a group session, like let's say you know a group a group therapy social skills session. And we discussed that a little bit in the cohort, like trying to figure out, okay, how do we do these in a group? How do we do them in one-to-one session? All those things like that. Oh, right. Well, thank you for clarifying that. Okay. So we've kind of gone a little bit out of order. We, maybe we should have used a visual, <laughs> uh, visual organizer, but we did say we wanted to mention some case studies. So are there any other case studies that you would like to mention? So I sort of sprinkled them in a little bit, those other ones, this topic maintenance about this teacher who was struggling with the student who kept on saying things that were like too off topic. That was something that like if they were using a topic maintenance thing, then that would be helpful for them in the classroom that a a high school student could even use that. I find that with students who understand how the lack of social skills is impacting their relationships, that they're already on board, it's much easier to do the therapy. Whereas I have another student who is completely clueless. Everyone in their environment is literally walking on eggshells around them and is very frustrated with them, yet they are they think everything is fine. Or it's everyone else's fault. Exactly. So how do you work with a student like that? It's very, very tricky. I always have this like moral dilemma when I'm trying to think about this because if they're doing fine, then is there a place to introduce to them and say like, oh, actually, you're really struggling? <laughs> right, right. You think you're doing great. Well, there's, that's the whole concept with neurodiversity. If, if they think they're doing fine, we need to respect that. At the same time, we all need to, you know, if you're talking about a classroom situation, at the same time, everyone needs to get along in the classroom in order for the curriculum, the learning to take place. So is, is what they're doing that is not fine for other people interrupting the classroom? Right. And also from a from a neurodiversity perspective as allowing them to shine where they're shining. And once, you know, many years ago, I worked with a student who we would have this discussion because she would say like, oh, that's what other people do. That's what, you know, other people do that, but that's not what I do. And I remember having this discussion with her because she had fabulous, fabulous skills. And we would talk about that a lot. And what we sort of came to the place was that when you're talking to another person, it's kind, not just a matter of like, hey, I expect other people to understand me, but it's also kind to understand them where this client is the one that's in front of you. You can't change the whole world, but you can help this client function better in their world and in their environment. So right now they may or may not understand why you're muttering under your breath and looking sideways. They may or may not, but you want them to see all this autism awesomeness type of push for all of that. And I love that. I love that there are so many strengths. Years later, this client actually called me up and said that they are the the highest ranking employee in 60 stores because they use their strengths within their diagnosis and they're using their strengths and they're doing fabulously. But this same student was the one that came to me and finally, you know, after a lot, a lot of discussion, realized that people weren't going to be able to appreciate her without her thinking about them also. 
As much as we say, okay, everyone should respect everyone, that's part of your process is to respect the other. So let's say I'm working with a student and they are saying, I don't care if other people look at me weird that I'm muttering under my breath. You're right, but they're not going to be able to hear how brilliant you are when it comes to numbers because they're just going to ride you off because that is something that would be unexpected. It's unexpected for somebody to talk about numbers throughout the entire dinner meal. So you want them to be able to hear about your strength of numbers. You have a fabulous strength of numbers. You want to be able to share that. Now, what's your best strategy for being able to do that? You have to make sure that the other person sees you, feels like you understand them so they can try and understand you. It's a partnership. It's not a one-way street. So this, there's an amazing push that I'm seeing for helping the, the environment and everyone be able to respect people who are coming across differently. But I, when I'm trying to help my students, I don't put the focus there because locus of control, they can't control their environment. What I want to do is help support them so they can feel like I know how to engage within my environment. I can't control if other people are going to think what I'm doing is weird or not weird. It may or may not be weird and I scream out in the middle of the subway, right? Okay, it's not bothering anybody, but they might not be able to see what I'm saying. Now, I want, as a kindness, to be able to share my light. How do I share my light? How do I see who the other person is? What What's their perspective? Okay, their perspective, we match the environment. If it's quiet in the room, we're able to be quiet. When the class is all taking a test, we're quiet when they're taking a test. When we're in a library and people are trying to study, we're quiet. We're trying, I mean, and when we think about other people, it's a matter of what's kind. Just like we would want somebody to be kind to understand my perspective, I have to be kind and understand their perspective. That's a two-way street. It's not a, you know, it's not, there's no release of responsibility. There's no victimhood in any of it. It's all a matter of who am I, what's inside of me, and how do I bring my light to the world? Right now, the best way for me to bring my light to the world is to first connect with the other person. I want to share with them about my amazing discovery that I discovered. I want to tell them all about these trains and how the system works and how amazing that the patterns and the timing and the, you know, or I want to tell them about all these type of dinosaurs and their bones and all their, who discovered them and what date they discovered them. And that's a really beautiful thing. That's a beautiful message that this person's going to bring to the table, but they can't bring it to the table if the other person can't hear them. So teaching them, okay, this is how you can let the other person see you. You want to let your light shine. This is how you can start with that. And that I feel like I'm scared with this beautiful push of neurodiversity, which I believe all of us need to work on our perspective taking. Every single one of us, it's the core of war and social unrest and everything when everyone can see the other person's perspective. But I think it goes always. I don't think there's any specific side that needs to or doesn't need to. It's it's a every human being's responsibility to look at what is the other person's perspective? What's going on in their world? How can I communicate with them? How can I be kind to them? Who do I want to be in this moment? You know, and it's always that like, okay, it's my right. It's my job. Who can I be? But that I think will, will lead to real connection. And that's part of the skills. The skills that I teach for emotional development is that every person is responsible for who they are and how they choose to communicate with the other, how, how they choose. And we teach our students and we teach our, our young adults about these skills. We teach them, how do I see another person? How do I understand how their family structure is different than my family structure? What's going on in their world? What might they be thinking about? How can I converse with them? All of these skills, it's across the board and it's adaptable because no person is the same as another person, no matter what their background, you know, everyone has their own story. 
So being able to help students see that and relate to the other in that way, I find is really where putting our energy will get the most bang for our buck. That's helping that connection. Well, that's wonderful. And I love how you bring the kindness and the light and being able to use these constructs to show your light through kindness. I really like that perspective. So I, you know what, I really wish that we had another hour because we could talk (laughs) about this for a while. (laughs) I would love for you to come back and do a webinar. I think Yumi was already going to talk to you about being part of our autism conference in 2022. But I think we could have a lot of mutual projects in the future. So we are almost out of time, but you were so nice to put some resources together and a handout together for us. And that is available through speechtherapypd.com. If you're listening on a different podcast platform, you won't see those. But can you, for our listeners who do have those handouts and resources, can you talk a little bit about what you included? Yes. Let me see. I'll tell you what I remember. Okay. While you're doing that, can you tell us about how someone would learn more about skills for connection? Okay. So I actually have a free demo to see like, okay, is this my style? Is this going to fit for me? Feel free to email me, Miriam at skillsforconnection.com. And if you email me, I'm happy to send you that training. And if you feel like, okay, this can really help me in my work and this can really help our school. And this is something that really, it resonates. It makes sense. It fits. You're welcome to sign up for the cohort skillsforconnection.com. It's under construction right now. So the only thing that's there right now is the sign up form. But if you have any questions or if you want to schedule a consult, email me, I can send you my Calendly link to schedule some time to be able to figure out what are your needs, what is going on in your environment, what what how what's what are your students, what are your clients, what are your young adults need to help them flourish in their environments and help them with connection in this ever-changing, beautifully challenging, dynamic, rich world that we're in, how can they have the tools and how can you as a therapist have you, what you need to feel confident that you're su- supporting and providing what they need. So that's uh, skillsforconnection.com. And my email is miriam at skillsforconnection.com. Okay. Okay. Wonderful. And do you have anything else you would like to add before we say goodbye for now? Yeah, I said a lot about how amazing teachers are, but I just want to commend there isn't anybody who's a therapist who doesn't invest their life in taking care and caring for other people and helping support other people. And the work that you do is so important. I cannot keep track of the number of people who have told me that their therapists have helped change their lives. So hats off to you for all the work that you're doing and all the care and thought that goes into your sessions and into supporting your clients and your young adults and the the students that you're working with. So I would just want to commend you and I'm grateful that we have a cohort of therapists out there that care enough about this to listen to this part all the way at the end uh, (laughs) that that are invested in helping support connection. Oh, Miriam, thank you so much. Your overview of visual cognitive and language constructs to aid generalization for communication and conversation skills gave us practical strategies that we can use right away. And the team approach to support social and emotional learning allows us to help our clients integrate those skills across different environments, home, work, school, and give them the tools that they need to move beyond school and for those young adults to move into the work environment. So we really do appreciate the time that you've taken with us today, as well as the program that you've developed for those who need it. So I look forward to talking with you again soon. 
Thank you very much. This is really lovely. Thank you, Mary Beth. Thank you. Thanks for joining us here at Keys for SLPs, providing keys to open new doors to better serve our clients throughout the lifespan. Remember to go to speechtherapypd.com to learn more about earning ASHA CEUs for this episode and all podcasts offered by speechtherapypd.com. Until next time, I'm your host, Mary Beth Hines. Keep up the good work.